This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Ten-year-old Hilian Nilsson disappeared on March 20th, 1989 and was found dead six days later. She had been kept alive for several days. And about five months later, on August 4th, 1989. The body of 26-year-old Jannika Ekblad is found. These two murders are not connected by the police due to the age difference of the victims. But 13 years later, a woman is seated next to a detective at a dinner party. And what she has to tell the detective is what finally solves the two cases. Hi, and welcome to True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Pernilla. Thank you so much for listening to the 10th episode of True Crime Sweden. I can't believe I'm already on episode 10. I've been meaning to add some words of warning in the beginning of each episode, but it was hard to find somebody who would voice it for me. Most of my friends are not comfortable with speaking English. And I also wanted a really great voice to do it. And I found him on one of my favorite podcasts ever. Did you recognize the voice in the beginning of the show? If not, the voice belongs to Tyler Allen. He is the host of the Minds of Madness podcast. And he was kind enough to record this for me. Thank you so much, Tyler. Tyler and his wife, Beck, does the Minds of Madness podcast together. And they do an amazing job. Each case are well-researched, respectful, and told in the most intriguing way. If you haven't listened to it yet, you have to check it out when you're finished with this episode. And I also want to say a big thank you for all the kind words on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And thank you for the reviews on iTunes. I'm overwhelmed with the support you guys are giving me, and I do appreciate it so much. Well, enough of that, and let's get into today's case. This all starts on Monday, March 20th, 1989, when 10-year-old Helene Nilsson gets permission by her parents to go out and meet her two friends, Sabina Brodin, and Linda Magnusson after dinner. It was the first day of the Easter break, and the three girls had spent the whole day together at Sabina's house, playing dress-up, putting on makeup, and pretending to be fashion models. But at about 6 p.m., Sabina had a piano lesson, and Helene went home to eat. The three girls had agreed on meeting again that night by the convenience store at 7 p.m. During dinner at Helene's house, Helene and her four-year-older sister Christine had had an argument. Helene was giving Christine a hard time, 
probably just the regular fighting between siblings. But Christine got upset and said to Helene during dinner that she hated her. Helene left the house at about 6.45, headed towards the convenience store. About half an hour later, Helene's friends knock on the door looking for Helene. She never showed up at the convenience store. Sabina and Linda, the two friends, then decide to go back to the convenience store to look for her. Maybe they just pass each other on the way. The convenience store is located about a 10-minute walk from Helene's house. The two girls keep walking back and forth there, looking for Helene, until they had to go home for the night. Helene's parents had told her she had to be home at 8 p.m. She was a very responsible young girl who always came home on time. So when she wasn't home at 8.05 p.m., her mother, Maivi, and her 14-year-old sister, Christine, goes out to search for her. Helene's father, Burje, stays at home in case Helene would return. When they come home a while later and Helene has still not returned, Helene's mother starts to call all her friends and the kids in her class to ask if someone had seen Helene, but nobody has seen her. It's now 9.50 p.m. and they are worried sick. Helene's father, Burje, then calls the emergency number at that time. 90,000. He tells the dispatcher that his daughter is missing, that she left their home after dinner to meet two friends, but that she never showed up. The first police officers arrive at their house 15 minutes after the call was placed. They are soon followed by more police. Word about Helene being missing spread quick in the small town of Harby, where Helene lived with her family. The police get the firefighters, cab companies, and Hem Vernet involved right away. Hem Vernet is an organization that is part of the army. If you translate Hem Vernet, it means home guard. This organization can quickly gather a lot of people to help out in the community when something happens. They help out when there is a special event that quickly needs a lot of manpower, such as large accidents, natural disasters, and missing people. Well, back to the story. Within one hour, there are more than 30 people who have shown up and are willing to help with the search for Helene. They are out all night searching. Helene's 19-year-old brother, Dan, who is home for the Easter break, takes his car and drives around looking for his little sister. The search party only grows by the minute, and about 3,000 people were out searching in the days after her disappearance. People searched day and night. They searched the small stream of water that runs through the town. They searched the woods, in people's gardens, everywhere, but she was nowhere to be found. At the same time, witnesses come forward and tell the police that they heard a girl scream at about 7 p.m. on the same night she disappeared. This, of course, convinces the police even more that she had been abducted.
both the local news and the national news are all over this, and Helene's picture is on every newspaper and on every TV newscast. It's later said that Helene's abduction is the case that made all Swedish parents aware of the danger with strangers. Before this, kids were allowed to be out and around in their town, but this really changed all that. Helene's mother describes in an interview that those first days before Helene was found was horrible. She couldn't eat, she couldn't sleep. They kept looking everywhere. And when the reporter asks her what her thoughts were during those first days, if she thought about what might have happened to Helene, Helene's mother answers, Of course the thought crossed my mind that something terrible might have happened. But the thought of something like that was so horrifying that I never let myself think that thought to the end. I can really understand that you don't want to even think about what might have happened to your loved one. But if you look back at the first case I covered on this podcast, the one where Linda Shen went missing one week before her wedding, and her fiancé was all over the news, speculating on what might have happened to her. To me, that is very telling. He knew what had happened to Linda. That is why he speculated and tried to take the focus off of himself. And yes, I know that people react differently in a crisis situation, but I don't think anyone would want to speculate on different horrible scenarios. Back to Helene's case. Helene's big sister, Christine, felt so bad about telling Helene that she hated her, and that was the last thing she ever said to her sister. She was out looking for Helene all the time. She just wanted to find her little sister and to tell her she was sorry for her hard words. Helene's older brother, Dan, took the family car, a red Volkswagen Golf, and kept driving around looking for his little sister. The search for Helene continued for six days, until the mother and her daughter, who were out picking white anemones in a small village nearby, found three black plastic bags that were taped together. One of the bags were broken, and a small bruised knee could be seen. They immediately contacted the police. Now there's going to be some gruesome details, and I'm sorry about that, but it's important to the case later, but I just wanted to give you a heads up. Helene was naked inside the plastic bags and it's later determined that the perpetrator had washed her body before putting her into the plastic bags. This was probably done to get rid of any evidence, but even though she had been washed off, there were several black dog hairs found on her body. The autopsy also shows that she had been kept alive for several days, but she hadn't been given any food or water. She had been raped and beaten severely, and the cause of death was strangulation. 
they also found semen inside of her. At this time, in 1989, the technology for analyzing traces like semen were not so advanced. But the trace found was frozen down to be kept for later technology advances. The search for the murderer continued. A lot of tips came in. The police found out that at the time of Helene's disappearance, there were about 10 men that had been convicted or suspected of sexual crimes that could be placed in the close proximity to the convenience store that Tilliam was heading towards. The police thought they were close to catching the perpetrator several times. They arrested a few, but in the end, they did not have enough to prosecute anyone. And about five months after Helene was murdered, 26-year-old Jannika Ekblad is found murdered on a rest area close to a road. Jannika is found by an older man who was retired. He had a routine of driving out to his summer house every day. He drove early in the morning and he always stopped at a rest area to try to catch a glimpse of a deer. On this morning, August 4th, 1989, he sees something lying on the ground as he drives into the rest area. At first, he thought it was some trash that someone had left. But when he drives closer, he thinks it's a mannequin. But when he gets out of the car, he can see that it is the body of a naked woman who has been brutally beaten and just been dumped there. He gets back into his car and he drives to a closed convenience store to use the phone to call the police. Jannika Ekblad had lived a rough life. At the age of 13, she came in contact with drugs and quickly became addicted. When she was about 20 years old, she got into heroin, and to finance her addiction, she was sometimes seen on the well-known street for sex workers in the city of Malmö, in the southern parts of Sweden. Jannika is often described in media as a drug addict and a prostitute. But her mother doesn't agree with this picture of her daughter. Yes, she was addicted to drugs, and she probably got into sex work a few times. But this wasn't all she was. She was a wonderful person who went down the wrong path. When she was murdered, she had been clean for about four months. She had gotten her own apartment and met a well-educated man that she was very much in love with but her own life wouldn't really leave her alone. The day before she disappeared, she called a friend of hers. She told the friend that she was going to meet a man for sex because her ex-boyfriend owed the man money. Shortly before Jannika leaves to go to this man's little house in the woods, she meets up with a friend. She was happy because her new boyfriend had brought her flowers. 
She also meets with some other friends before she leaves, and they later describe to the police that Yannicka was scared and worried about going to see this man. A male friend of Yannicka's that she meets with before she goes says that she asked him to contact the police if she didn't come back and to tell the police that she left with a man in a Volvo. Yannicka leaves to go with the man to the small house in the woods to pay off her boyfriend's debts. This is on August 3, 1989, and the morning after, on August 4, 1989, her body is found on that rest area. When they start analyzing Yannicka's body and the place she was found, there is a crime scene investigator that was involved in analyzing Helene's case five months earlier, and he sees similarities in the two cases. Both had been victims of extreme violence. Both had been strangled. They were both naked and had been washed off before dumped. The two places are located in the same area, and they also find dog hair on both bodies. The pathologist who examined Yannicka's body during the autopsy chose to describe the places on her body where there were no injuries, instead of the other way around. This is how violent the abuse was. Even though the places where they found the two bodies were close, they were in two different jurisdictions, and this, and also due to the age difference of the two victims, makes the investigators think that the two crimes are not linked. Helian's and Yannicka's cases continues to be investigated as two separate cases, and on September 27th of 1989, about two months after Yannicka was murdered, the head investigator for Helene's case, Detective Alf Andersson, receives a letter. The letter contains of cut-out letters from newspapers that has been glued onto a paper, and it says, The murder of Helene and Yannicka. Why? Because of the fucking loneliness and the harassment at work by the girls. I need revenge. Helian's parents plead to the murderer or whoever knows something to come forward with the information. They keep saying that they need to know who did this to their daughter and why. And in the spring of 1991, two years after Helian was murdered, Detective Alf Andersson gets a call from a man who claims to be the murderer. The detective has, of course, all the information in the case, and he tries to ask the caller things that only the true killer would know. The caller says, You don't understand how lonely I am. The fucking loneliness. I'm ashamed. What I have done is unforgivable. But you don't have to worry about it happening again. And you don't have to wonder about the other one. I did them both. Explain this to Helene's parents. And he continues. 
The reason I killed Yannicka is because she started to nag about wanting drugs. I should have paid her 2,000 kroner, but instead she started to ask for drugs as soon as she got into the car. This made me crazy. The caller admits to killing them both. But even though these calls came in, they were no closer to catching him. In Helene's case, there are several people who get arrested, but who later gets released due to lack of evidence. In Yannicka's case, it takes about 10 years before anyone is arrested, and this too turns out to be the wrong person. Yannicka's friend agrees to talk to the police after 10 years, and she says that she and Yannicka went to this summer house close to the town of Harby a few times with a man who paid them for sex. This summer house is located in a small village called Bokesund, and it's going to play a huge role in the investigation later. In 2001, the two cases are considered to be cold cases. But then a new investigator makes the decision to look into Helene's case again. His name is Per Åke Åkesson. It's now been 12 years since Helene was murdered, and the investigation was massive. But he started to read and get into the case to see if he, with the help of new technology, could do something with it. The small amount of sperm that they found inside Helene's body was too small to be analyzed according to the Swedish Criminology Laboratory. But in England, they had developed a new technique. So the sample was sent to England for testing. In England, they were able to get a DNA profile out of the sample. And it's said that they needed 100 sperms to be able to get the profile. And the sample contained of exactly 100 sperms. I don't know how accurate that is, but I think it's safe to say that it was a close call. The new investigator, Pad Åke also looks into the previous questionings of suspects. And he finds one man very interesting. This man lived in the same neighborhood as Helene. He had since been convicted for molesting young girls. He was on leave from his military service and he had been seen outside the convenience store in which Helene was supposed to meet her friends. He said that he was there with his cousin and that he just went in to buy some milk. But the investigator, Per Åke Åkesson, looks into his cousin's testimony, and their stories doesn't add up at all. They decide to bring them both in for further questioning. But when the news about the new suspects in Helene's case reaches the media, the former head of investigation, Alf Andersson, gets another call. And he says that it sounds exactly like the caller who had called him 10 years earlier, claiming to be Helene's and Jannica's killer. The caller says that you've got the wrong guys. They had nothing to do with this. But despite of this call, the two suspects are kept in custody. 
The main suspect is put through some hard questioning by the female detective, Monica Olhed Hansson. She even showed him pictures of Helene's body, taken at the place where she was found. She was hoping that this would make him break down and confess, but it didn't. The both men were released due to lack of evidence. But a few more years are going to pass without anyone being arrested in Helene's or Yannicka's cases. But the new attention in the media resulted in more tips coming in. And then one night, in 2004, when a woman is seated next to the investigator Monica Olhed Hansson at a dinner party, something finally happens. Monica Olhed Hansson was now one of the investigators on the Helene case, and when the two women talked during dinner, the subject of what they did for a living came up. And when Monica Olhed Hansson told the woman that she was working on the Helene case, the other woman said to her that she had something to tell her. She started to tell her that at the time of Helene's murder, she was working in a factory called Bilsom in the village of Hör, which is only about a 15-minute drive from the town Hörby, where Helene went missing. In that same factory worked a man who was very strange. His name was Ulf Olsson. The woman describes how he gave her the chills. He made her really uneasy. He also made sexual remarks all the time. He called the female employees bad names and bragged about all the sex workers that he had bought through the years. He bragged especially about the really young sex workers he had found when he was working abroad. She also says that he had a small house outside Hörby and that he was a loner. She also tells the investigator about his heavy drinking that on some days they had to ask him to leave work because he was too intoxicated. She also says that every time the police had arrested someone for Helene's murder, she thought to herself that this is not the right guy either. It has to be Ulf Olsson. But she didn't have any proof and didn't want to go to the police without anything real to go on. The investigator, Monica Olhed Hansson, feels immediately that she can trust this woman. This is something to look into. I guess when you are an investigator, you are used to dismissing people who only want the attention or to somehow try to make themselves interesting and part of the investigation. But she really felt that this woman had something. So she takes the tip with her to work. The situation in the investigation is that they are about to collect DNA from 28 men that are interesting in the investigation in some way. She wants to add Ulf Olsson to this list, but everyone is not convinced. The lead investigator finally agrees to add him to the list on the condition that Monica Olhed Hansson handles him herself, and she agrees. Ulf Olsson became number 29 on the list.
On August 9th, 2004, Ulf Olsson comes in for questioning and allows the police to collect his DNA. And two weeks later, on June 23rd, 2004, 15 years and five months after Helene was murdered, they finally got a match. It was without a question Ulf Olsson's DNA that was found inside Helene. He is arrested later that same day. When they start looking into him, they find other things that are really interesting. He owned a small house in the village of Bokesund in 1989. Remember, this is the place where Jannika and her female friend had been earlier to sell sex. He also owned a black dog back in 1989. And there's a final interesting thing. The day after Jannika's body was found, Ulf Olsson goes to the hospital with a broken arm. It's believed that Jannika fought back and that was the reason for his broken arm. When the police go out to the small house that Ulf Olsson owned back in 1989 to do a crime scene investigation of the house, they find a lot of blood under the baseboards in the hallway and in the washroom. The blood is of course tested and it belongs to Jannika Ekblad. Let's get into Ulf Olsson a little more. Ulf Olsson was born on December 19th 1951, in Hör, in the southern parts of Sweden. He had four siblings. He moved from Hör to Hörby when he was four years old. Hörby is the town where Helene lived when she was murdered in 1989. Ulf Olsson was 37 years old when he murdered Helene. Ulf had a very rough childhood. They were beaten by their parents, but most of all by the mother. He was also bullied in school and did everything he could to cover his bruises in school. His mother used to beat them with a carpet beater until they were bleeding. Ulf seemed to be the most sensitive one among the siblings. He describes that he once got scared when a fire truck passed outside with the sirens on, and that made his mother so angry that she beat him and then locked him out from the apartment overnight. There's also a story about how Ulf and one of his brothers found a teddy bear in the woods. They brought it home, they played with it and cared for it, but one day when they came home from school, their mother had thrown the teddy bear away. They had no other toys. It's also talked about his relationships with animals. He always owned dogs and cats. And several people tell the police later that he could all of a sudden shoot one of his animals or break their neck. To me, this is very telling when it comes to a serial killer, as I guess we can label him. I think you often see a disturbed relationship with especially the mother that really affects a person throughout their life. In this case, 
Ulf was mocked by his mother. He was beaten. A child sees their mother as a protector and a person who should care for them. And when none of that is done, it must affect a person. In his mind, the line between caring and affection on one side, and anger, rage, and humiliation on the other side, were very thin and closely linked to each other. In his teenage years, Ulf Olsson was admitted to a psychiatric facility for two months, but after that it doesn't seem like he had any other treatment. Around 1980, Ulf meets a 16-year-old girl. Ulf was then 27. The two later get married, but the marriage only lasts a year. He beat her several times, and he also killed her cat in their bathroom. He had a few shorter relationships over the years, but about a year after he killed Helium, he meets a woman and they have a son together. But in 1991, Ulf breaks off the relationship because he saw her smoking on the balcony, and he didn't like smoking. But after they split up, the woman wouldn't let him see his son. And about eight years after Helene's murder, Ulf Olsson sent a letter to the editor of one of Sweden's largest papers at the time, in which he describes how his life has been a living hell. There is a lot of details in the letter and a lot of bitterness. He describes that it has been 4,764 days since she left him, and that he has only seen his son for 24 hours since then. He also explains in the letter how he used alcohol to get through the days. He is very angry at the authorities for not letting him see his son, and the male person at the social office, who is the one in charge of his case, he describes as a person who has a higher number as his shoe size than he has on his IQ score. So it sounds like he has a little bit of humor after all. One year before he was arrested for Helene's murder, Ulf Olsson was caught when he glued screws to the road. Over 200 cars had had flat tires because of him, but he only admitted to doing it that one time, and he was sentenced to pay a smaller amount of money for that offense. Ulf Olsson always spoke in the same tone of voice, and he almost never smiled, one of his former neighbors said in an interview. He lived by himself in a one-room apartment, and he had a golden retriever that was always by his side. He was known in the small village of Vimmerby, where he had lived, as the man with the dog. Another one of his neighbors describes going into his apartment at one time. There were almost no furniture, just a bed, a bookshelf, and a computer. In an interview that was published shortly after he was arrested in 2004, 
Ulf Olsson's sister says that she was shocked when she heard that he had been arrested. She says that it's impossible that her brother had anything to do with this. He is not a violent person, she says. She describes all the siblings as very calm and collected. And about Ulf, she says that he never even raised his voice. She also says that she hasn't talked to him in over 10 years. So it seems like they weren't too close. A professor in psychiatry, Sten Levander, says that the way he violated and murdered Helene says a lot about him as a perpetrator. He kept her alive for several days without food or water, abusing her and finally killing her. Like a cat plays with a mouse, the professor says. This is a predatory need kind of a predatory aggression of sorts. The professor continues. The perpetrator is mentally disturbed, but has the ability to function in normal social settings. He has a sexual sadistic need, and it's fair to assume that he has done this more than once. This interview with the professor was done shortly after Ulf Olsson was arrested and before the police knew that he was guilty of Jannika's murder as well. So it seems like this professor really knew what he was talking about. Ulf Olsson says that he didn't have anything to do with the two murders. He says that he's being framed he even showed a reporter how the semen might have gotten into Helene's body. He shows the reporter how he could have been drugged and then they lifted his unconscious body on top of her and then forced him into her without him being aware of it. The evidence they have against him are the following. They have his DNA inside Helene's body. They found one of his pubic hairs on the tape that taped the plastic bags together containing Helene's body. The dog hair is determined to belong to the same kind of dog that he owned in 1989. The blood found in his old house belongs to Jannica Ekblad. They can also tie him to the letters and the phone calls. Another evidence is a CD-ROM that was sent to the police. That CD-ROM contained a picture of Ulf Olsson's black dog from back in 1989 and a letter in which he talks about the murders and how lonely he is. And the police technicians can determine that it came from Ulf Olsson's computer. In my mind, those evidences speak for themselves. But Ulf keeps claiming that he has nothing to do with it. The trial starts in November of 2004. And in an interview before the trial, Ulf Olsson said something about that the worst thing for him would be to have to face Helene's parents and siblings. 
After hearing this, Helene's mother and sister makes sure that they are attending the trial every single day. Even though they didn't think they would have the strength to be there at first. But just because he said that that was the thing he feared most, they made sure to be there. In December of 2004, Ulf Olsson is found guilty for both Helene Nilsson's murder and Jannika Ekblad's murder. But they have to do a psychiatric investigation before he gets his sentence. In April of 2005, he is sentenced to life in prison. But his lawyer appeals this right away. And the sentence is changed to forensic psychiatric care with a special discharge examination. This means that he gets locked up in an institution where other criminals who are too mentally disturbed to go to prison are. If you ask someone on the street in Sweden, they would probably say that these guys get released from this mental institution after a few years, and that they are soon back on the streets, and that it would be better if they were sent to prison instead. But if you compare people who have been given a life sentence in prison to a person who gets convicted to this forensic psychiatric care, the people who end up in the institution are kept locked up way longer than the ones who end up in prison. Remember from the Matthias Flink case, life in prison in Sweden means about 20 years served. Ulf Olsson is in 2005 sent to the Forensic Psychiatric Care Facility in the town of Sundsvall in the northern part of Sweden. He keeps claiming that he is innocent, and in 2006 his book is released. It's called Utan Rättssäkerhet, which translates to something like Without Legal Rights. I haven't read this book. I don't know if I ever will. He seems to be a very disturbed person, and I think the evidence talks for itself. When he is locked up, he is obviously allowed to go online and to have his own computer, which is strange to me, but that's the way it was. He starts a blog where he only writes about how he is wrongfully convicted and so on. And on January 10, 2010, five years after his conviction, he writes his final post on the blog, still maintaining that he is innocent. And then he takes the sheets from his bed and hangs himself. He is found dead later that morning. In that final post on his blog, he says that he might as well die because he realizes that he will never be let out of this institution. This case was a hard one to research. I had to leave the computer several times because I got too emotional. I can still remember when this happened in 1989. I was 14 years old and terrified by everything I read in the papers. Just thinking about what Helene had to go through in her final days is just so horrible. I can't even allow my mind to go there. 
And when researching, I came across some interviews with Helene's mother, Maivi, and her older sister, Christine. And Christine, all these years later, still cries when she talks about that the last words she said to her little sister was that she hated her. That is just so heartbreaking. Another thing that I think is really sad when I research this is how little information there is about Yannicka's case. She was labeled as a drug addict and a sex worker, and obviously not worth the same attention in the media's eyes. But she was a daughter, a friend, a girlfriend, and a beautiful young woman who got caught up in some bad stuff. But she was still a person who was taken away way too early. I just want to finish this episode off by sending my love and my thoughts to Helene's and Yannicka's families. Your beautiful daughters are not forgotten. Thank you for listening to the 10th episode of True Crime Sweden. But we have one more thing to get to before we are done. A little fact about Sweden. I received a question in the True Crime Sweden discussion group on Facebook from one of the members, Mary. This question was really interesting and one I hadn't thought about. She asked me why Marina Johansson from episode 8 was allowed to live in a house with her boyfriend without being married when her parents were so religious. And if you remember, the parents had helped her financially to be able to buy the house. And yes, the parents were super religious and didn't allow the girls to wear nail polish or other sinful things. Not that I think that nail polish is so sinful, but anyway. The reason for all this is because Marina was not religious at all, and most people in Sweden are not religious, and they only go to church if someone gets married, baptized, or if there's a funeral. When I was in the US, I heard a lot of people saying to someone that was going through a rough time that I'll be praying for you. I think it's a beautiful thing to say, but you would never ever hear that in Sweden. You would instead hear something like, you are in my thoughts, or something like that. There's a Swedish movie that has a scene that is very telling when it comes to this. The couple in the movie are getting married and are meeting with a priest to go through the ceremony. The couple then starts asking the priest if he can just cut out all the stuff about Jesus and God and just go straight to the marriage stuff. That is a very telling scene, I think. We still want to be married in the church with a priest, but we don't really believe in all the religious things. We have beautiful old churches in Sweden, and I personally love to just go in and sit in one. But I don't really know what I believe in, to be honest. Most Swedes, if they got the question about what they believe in, they would probably answer that they believe in something, but they don't really know what. And when it comes to the marriage thing, 
Some people get married and some don't. Some couples live together their whole life without ever getting married, and this is not strange to anyone. We have a great word for this, and it's sambo. It's short for sammanboende, which means living together. So if you have to fill in your marital status on a form somewhere, you always get at least three choices. Married, sambo, or single. Another thing that might be interesting to mention here is when a woman gets pregnant, it doesn't mean that the man has to step up and marry her. It was like that before, but that changed sometimes in the 80s. There are so many options when a woman gets pregnant. You can raise a child by yourself, without anyone around you raising an eyebrow. If people should get married, it should only be out of love for each other, I think. Please feel free to join the True Crime Sweden discussion group on Facebook. It is kept closed just because you might not want all your friends to be able to see what you are posting. Just ask to be added and either I or my super helpful moderator Betty will let you in. I hope to see you there. You can always reach me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com or find me on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and I hope I see you again next time. Goodbye. Hej då!